0: If you would, join me this morning as we open up our Bibles. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible with you, take the one out in front of you. If you're at home, um, go find your Bible wherever it might be. Take it out, bring it with you wherever you are joining us in worship. Our reading today is going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning at verse 1, and we're going to work through most of the chapter as we go. So instead of reading it all at the beginning, um, there's a lot there, and so we're going to kind of climb through it together, and it's going to be really helpful if you have it in front of you. So please join me now in that place. And while you're looking that up, uh, I'll share with you two... Two one-liners. These are groaners. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. Um, But they're about patience, and they're going to get us into a part of what God's Word has to teach us this morning. Uh, The first one is this. I wanted to tell you this week I'm going to be going to a seminar on patience. I can't wait. (laughs) See, I warned you. (laughs) But I also want you to know that this last week I had my patience tested and don't worry, it came back negative. <laughs> it's not contagious, anything like that. But would you not agree that, that, of all of the things that we face, right, as humanity, I think one of the most universal things that we all struggle with is that we don't like to wait, do we? Nobody likes to wait. We don't like to wait for our food. We don't like to wait for that next episode to load on Netflix as we're watching an entire series of something. Last time I went to the dermatologist. I think I shared this not terribly long ago. They had to test something, and they sent in this thing to be tested, and they said, we're going to send you the results back, but you're going to get them before the doctor has a chance to read them, and you're not going to understand what they mean. So just wait until we call. Do you think I waited and until the doctor called. No, I opened up that email right away and then I'm Googling all the things I don't understand. Why? Because we don't like to wait. And if there's a place that I think we don't like to wait most of all, it's waiting on God, right? whether you're waiting on God to answer a specific prayer or or for wisdom and what direction are you calling me to go in this area of life or some other place. Or maybe it's the overarching hope Because you've been around the the Christian tradition long enough that you know that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and it's only the first coming. He's going to come back. And so we anxiously await that triumphant return where he comes to make all things new. Are you waiting for that? Because that's what Peter is going to talk to us about today. And while most conversations around the second coming of Jesus are often centered around trying to figure out when that day is going to occur, what this chapter is more concerned about is our universal struggle that we all share to wait. So it reminds me of last time I preached on the topic of waiting about two years ago. I started the sermon with Psalm 90, verse 4, which is fitting today because Peter actually cites it in chapter 3 as well. So let me read it to you. It reminds us that God's timing is not our timing. It says a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. How many of you have heard the phrase that God's timing is not your timing? Show of hands. I think we all know this. The problem with passages like this is that even if a thousand years are like a day in the eyes of God, do you know how a thousand years feels in your eyes and mine? Like a thousand years. That's what we're struggling with today. Today is the final Sunday in our series, Generous Grace. We've been on this journey through a short letter in the New Testament that you may very well have overlooked over time, 2 Peter. And yet, what you'll find, and what you probably found up to this point as well, is that there are a lot of different familiar verses and familiar concepts that you've probably come across before, and you'll see that in our reading today as well. So let's begin with just the first two verses of Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. He says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, this is something that you want to note anywhere in Scripture when the author specifically tells us what they're writing about. What is the purpose to what it is that we're reading? And Peter says that he has a specific purpose for this letter, and that is to stimulate you to, say it with me, wholesome thinking. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, not English, and so we have to translate. And the word for wholesome in the Greek is often in English translations translated differently. It's translated as pure. Uh, Another word that I found in, in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message was undistracted, to stimulate you to undistracted thinking, to pure thinking. And and, and I like thinking about this in some different ways because when I see the word wholesome, it conjures up all sorts of different ideas in my mind, and I'm not sure it's exactly what Peter had intended. For example, the word wholesome often brings me back to thinking about a time and a place when everything in the world was wholesome. When everything in the world was good and pure and right, I I think about television shows like like the Andy Griffith Show and Leave It to Beaver. I've got a slide here, Evan, if you want to switch over. Uh, The Cosby Show, Full House. Uh, I mean, how many of you grew up watching at least something there on that list? And and we do this all over the place. We, We often think to ourselves that if our nation, if our culture, if the church would just go back, right? Just go back to its ideals. That would solve all of our problems. And when we say things like that, and we all do it in different places, we're making a big assumption that at some point in the past, we really were pure at living out our ideals in the first place. And here's the thing. It's not true. Just look at what was taking place during the time that those television shows were entertaining us. Think about the broken places in our world and in our society. Think about the brokenness in some of the lives of the actors and the actresses that we've since learned in the years that have followed while they were entertaining us with wholesome television I'm reading a book right now. The title was, is um, And There Was Light. It's by uh, John Meckham, and it's about Abraham Lincoln. And I started reading this because uh, about a month ago, uh, my family and I, we were in St. Louis on a family vacation, and on the way back, we stopped in Springfield, Illinois, and we had lunch just about a block away from Abraham Lincoln's family home there. And so we toured the neighborhood, we read the plaques, and it was really neat. The last time I had, I grew up in Illinois, so when I was in middle school, we had to go and go to this place and do all this. This was the last time I was there. Um, and so it was really neat to go back as an adult with my own children. And as we were touring the neighborhood, they, they often had pictures in um, the different places and on the different plaques. And, and one of them was right outside the home the family home of Abraham and his wife Mary Todd Uh, they purchased this home in Springfield actually from a pastor there and so just as an aside if any of you are aspiring future presidents and you want to buy my house I would get to be a footnote in your story that would be really cool so come talk to me I'll sell you my house it'd be lots of fun but anyway, not related to what I'm about to say. Outside the family home there, there's this plaque with a picture. And here, here's the picture there of the home as it looked in 1860. And at, in 1860, this was shortly after Lincoln had become the Republican nominee for president. And they wanted to give the country a view of who he was personally as a family man where he lives. And so they, they sent photographers to take pictures in Springfield. And in this particular photo, right outside, it's it's kind of hard to see. Um, these are just some pedestrians there in front. But right right back there, you can go to the next one, um, Evan, that's fine. Um, you've got Abraham Lincoln there. His older son Willie is standing next to him. And if you didn't read the fine print, you might not even realize that they're young his son, Tad, is in the picture, too, because he's hiding behind the fence. You see that? He's, he's just peeking around he's only about seven years old at the time and and so I thought well that's really fascinating as I'm standing there with my five kids and one of them's peeking around my leg right and so I was doing a little more research and I found that this was one of two photos that were taken at the same time by the same photographer here's the second picture Abraham Lincoln looks the same Willie looks the same but if you zoom in what you'll see is Tad is no longer hiding, he is scaling the fence. He's climbing the fence while his father, the future president of the United States, is standing all regal-like and all this stuff. His brother knows what he's supposed to be doing, and Tad is having lots of fun. And so I was I was reading more about Tad. This made me even more interested in him, and I learned that he was quite the character as a child. And it said this in the Lincoln Centennial about his time in the White House. It said, in the White House, this is what Tad did, he "...sprayed dignitaries with fire hoses, he broke mirrors, he locked doors, he interrupted cabinet meetings, he constructed wagons and sleds out of chairs, he set up a food shop in the lobby, he rang the call bells, he drilled the servants as if they were soldiers, and what did did his father do? Abraham generally laughed at his son's tricks." And any kind of discipline was generally lacking. So I share that just to to point out, in case you wondered just how human Abraham Lincoln and his family truly were, there's just one of many examples. There you go. Wholesome and pure are probably not words that one would use to have described those years, either for a nation that was literally being ripped apart by Civil War, slavery, or Lincoln as a family. On a more serious note, ten years before those photos were taken, the Lincoln family was in that same home mourning the loss of their second son, Eddie, just days before his fourth birthday. Two years later, the older boy in the picture, Willie, passed away from typhoid fever, and three years after that, Lincoln himself would be assassinated while watching a play at Ford's Theater, and consequently, little Tad was at a different theater at that time with his tutor, and he was watching the play Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, and they literally had to usher him out before they made the public announcement to everybody that was there that the President of the United States had just been And it was a few days after that, that Tad, who's 12 at this time, was quoted as saying this about his father. Pa is dead. I can hardly believe that I shall never see him again. I must learn to take care of myself now. Yeah, Pa is dead. And I am only Tad Lincoln now. Little Tad, like other little boys. I'm not the president's son now. I won't have many presents anymore. Well, I will try to be a good boy and will hope to go someday to Pa and Brother Willie in heaven. Now, what does all this have to do with 2 Peter? This chapter... Was written for Tad. 2 Peter chapter 3 was written for Tad and for you and for me and for anybody who has lived enough life to suffer. It's written to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Pure, undistracted thinking about the truths of the past, not because they come from times that were perfect, but because they speak of a future when God will make all things new and the old order will go away. A future where Pa and Willie and Tad will be together with Jesus forever. And Peter is reminding his readers that that day will come. And while a suffering humanity waits, which none of us are good at doing, people cope with waiting in different ways. And so Peter describes those different ways, verse 3. He says, above all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has in silence since the beginning of creation. My guess is that you can can either relate directly to that. Have you ever thrown your hands up to the heavens and said, where are you, God? If you haven't, I'm sure you can at least deeply sympathize with that kind of Response. I think all of us can relate to this. And Peter reminds us that when we do, or if that's who we are, he says they deliberately forget. That long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What Peter's doing in just a few verses here is summarizing the entire story of God just as God brought creation out of the order of, or out of the, the chaos of disorder, which is the abyss of water that we read in the creation account in Genesis, just as He brought order out of the disorder, just as God again brought order to the disordered world through the flood at the time of Noah, Jesus will return and do it again. And this time it's going to be permanent. And scripture uses words to describe this time as things like fire and judgment. These are the tools of God that Jesus is going to bring and wield to make all things right again. And that sounds terrible, doesn't it? And contradictory even if all you think about God is a loving savior except that part is loving too. Because when you and I are up against the things of this world that we are desperately waiting to be destroyed, we need the fire of judgment to take those things away. The effects and consequences of sin. Things like slavery and civil war and typhoid fever and presidential assassinations and 12-year-old boys named Tad who longed to be with their pa. Just as a quick aside, this is why those who study the Christian faith and reduce it to just a set of moral teachings and good stories don't go nearly far enough, because you and I know that the teachings and good stories are not what we need, are they? They're no better in and of themselves than wholesome television shows that play on our TVs in times where real life is anything but wholesome. Friends, Jesus didn't just come to teach. He came to fix everything by making everything new. And he will complete that work when he returns. And until then, this is what we're called to do. Verse 8, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. He talks to us as his friends, Peter says. Don't forget, have you heard this before? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I want to point something out I never noticed here before until just this week. After Peter names the universal human condition that none of us want to wait, and then he describes those of us, which is so many of us, right, who grow impatient and cry out, where is this coming? When is it going to happen, right? That question that people often ask. After all of that, notice that Peter doesn't tell the reader to be patient, After he's made this entire case, he doesn't say, therefore, God's timing is not your timing. Relax, take a deep breath, be patient. And I notice that because maybe as as a parent of young children, that's what I would say. (laughs) Be patient. Have we not made the case that God is not finished yet? But Peter doesn't say that. Peter says that when you and I are anxiously waiting, it's God who brings the patience for us. God is the one who's being patient with us. That not only do we have hope that Jesus is going to return and make all things new, that he's going to judge and he's going to destroy all sin and all suffering and all death, but he is also sitting with you and me right here and right now being patient with us while we wait. You don't even have to be patient. Because God will be patient for you. Isn't that a relief? And so to practice this, I want to encourage you to do something. And I had to think long and hard about this because my kids are going to be at the next service. One of them is going to be here. And and so I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to regret this. But next time somebody tells you to be patient, I want to give you a response. And and, and preferably, it's only for the people that have heard this sermon or this is going to come across as really rude. But next time somebody tells you to be patient, in the next slide, you'll see your response. What I want you to say is I want you to say, I can't. All right? So let's try that. Be patient. I can't. Let's try the next part. But God can, and he will be patient with me. Let's try that one more time. Be patient. I can't. But God can, and he will be patient with me. We can't, but God can, and he will be patient with me. And if that's true, then that leaves us with just one last question, and that is, what do I do while God is being patient with me? And I'll tell you what not to do. Don't do what everyone else does. Don't waste the rest of your life trying to figure out when is he coming. A lot of people make a lot of money, Making those kinds of assumptions, and you know what? For 2,000 years, not a single one of them has been true. Spending your time trying to figure out when it's going to happen will only produce worry and anxiety inside of you. And I've shared this many times before in different sermons. I don't even remember where the quote comes from anymore. What does worry do? It's like sitting on a rocking chair. You're moving back and forth, and it doesn't actually take you anywhere that you want to go. And so Jesus said this, and Peter repeats it in verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's what Jesus said. It's going to come like a thief. Now let me tell you, it's a good thief. (laughs) It's a thief that breaks into your house and steals everything that you never want to see again. It steals sin and suffering and death. But just like a thief, you can't figure out when. And so while we wait, and while God is being patient with us, verse 11, it says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We live holy and godly lives while we wait. Not to earn anything, not to rescue ourselves, but because God has already rescued us. And we know that he's coming back. And until then, we, quote, speed his coming, Peter says, by participating in the mysterious work of God while we wait. Remember what it says in verse 9, that God does not want anyone to perish And he repeats the sentiment in verse 15 when he says, bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. He's waiting to save the world because Jesus wants the whole world. Friends, you might already know that you're saved by Jesus. My my guess is you do. You're sitting here in church. You're watching online. My question to you is, does your neighbor know Because see, the Lord is patient with them too. And the Lord is drawing them to himself. The same way that the Lord has drawn you and me to himself. That is by his love. One of the most meaningful presentations that I saw, it was actually the most meaningful one that I saw in Springfield. I'll leave you with this. Was, was not in front of that Lincoln home and that plaque with that big picture of the house. It was the plaque that they put in the backyard of the Lincoln home. I don't even know how many people read that plaque, but it was the most meaningful one to me. Let me read it to you. It said this. It said, A neighbor who lived on the east of the Lincolns commented that, and I quote, Lincoln would take his children and they would walk out on the railway out into the country, and he would talk to them. And he would explain things to them carefully, particularly. And years later, Mary described her husband as saying this, It is my pleasure that my children are free, happy, and unrestrained by parental tyranny. Love is the chain whereby to bind a child to its parents. And you, child of God... You are free. You are happy. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you are unrestrained by parental tyranny as well. Our troubles on this side of eternity are light and momentary, as the Apostle Paul says. And until Jesus returns, it is love that binds us to our Father in heaven while we wait.